The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We often have the assumption life should be free from detours, right? We should be on the straight track. You know, God's told us what we're supposed to do. He's put the goal in front of us. The path is laid out straight and easy. And if we just faithfully follow God, we will get to our goal without trouble or problems. But uh, throughout Scripture, it never works that way. I think God is very much a God of detours. God apparently loves detours. And uh, in life, I've discovered there's a couple different kinds of detours. Um, one kind of detour is the detour when you're driving down the road, you're on, on the freeway, whatever, and there's a detour because far up ahead there's some obstacle. You know, the bridge is washed out, and the road is impassable. So you have to take an alternative route, and they steer you off the main road, and you take a detour around this obstacle to get you back past the obstacle and on the road again. That's one kind of detour. But there's another kind of detour and this kind of detour is where the road is fine, but the driver has a screw loose, right? <laughs> and uh, this is, uh, I'm actually quite good at these kind of detours, and my wife can verify this. Um, and what this, what this kind of detour is, it means you leave a perfectly fine road in search of an alternative route that's more scenic, or shorter, right? Or better. And I, I, I happen to... Uh, practice this quite often. And poor Denise, when we first got married, in fact, on our honeymoon, she didn't realize that I was prone to this, this malady of taking detours, leaving perfectly good roads to go off into the wild blue yonder. And uh, it was on our honeymoon, and we were driving around the state of Colorado, and uh, every chance I got, I was taking detours. And, um, and she, to this day, reminds me <laughs> of how abusive that was. Right? <laughs> Well, it seems kind of like that's how God is. You know, it seems like God, uh, you know, I mean, God's the one who built the bridge, and he can fix it. And he takes us off perfectly, perfectly good roads and sends us on these wild offshoot detours. Uh, and certainly that seems to be what he is doing here with, uh, with Jacob. You know, here's the promise he tells Abraham. You know, it's, a, it's an easy deal. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to have lots of descendants. And I'm going to give you the land of Canaan as your own possession. And it's going to be yours. And Abraham looks into the future and he sees this is not hard. I have children. I have grandchildren. They multiply like rabbits. And in a few generations, we just own the land of Canaan. So he sets off. And he and Sarah can't have one child, much less lots, right? So for 25 years, he's what? He's on this huge detour, right? Well, fast forward, here comes Jacob. And uh, as we'll see later, his family uh, is multiplying. They're up to 70 now and more counting. So it seems like that side's working well. And so now it's just a matter of taking over the land of Canaan. And all of a sudden, here is Jacob heading to Egypt. And in fact, if we look at 47 verse 1, it says, uh, verse... Uh, 1 of 46, sorry. So Jacob set out for Egypt with all his possessions. And a little bit later we see that not only all his possessions, but all his family. Right? So he's not looking at this as a short-term thing. He's not going to Egypt for a few weeks, hang out at the beach, go to the resort, enjoy the good food there, and go home. Right? He's packed up everything. 
all of his family, all of his belongings. And he's quite an old guy at this point, 130 years old. Uh, if you remember several chapters back, he was ready to die at the age of 110. Okay? So he's, he's, he's looking forward to the grave. You know? And he's not, he did not book a round-trip ticket. Okay? This is a one, one-way ticket. He's going, I'm going to Egypt. I'm not coming back. Right? And it just seems like a huge detour. And the question that must be running through Jacob's mind is, and as the readers look at this, is the question, is Jacob giving up on the promise? Right? Is Jacob abandoning God's program and God's plan? And is he um, you know, going to Egypt, giving up on the promise and the promised land? And that really is the question that, uh, that's dealt with and that's explored in these two chapters. Uh, is this detour really from God, or is it just more of Jacob's foolishness? And if it is God's plan, what in the world is God thinking? Right? What is he thinking? Uh, well, I don't know if we'll ever answer that question, because I don't know that we'll ever know what God is thinking. Um, but, but let's read on and see what God is telling us here. Um, so when... When Jacob came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And during the night, God spoke to him in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he called. Here I am, Jacob replied. I am El, the God of your father, the voice said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you down to Egypt, and I will bring you back again. But you will die in Egypt with Joseph attending you. So Jacob left Beersheba, and his sons took him to Egypt. And they carried him and their little ones and their wives in the wagons Pharaoh had provided. They also took all their livestock, all their personal belongings they had acquired in the land of Canaan. So Jacob and his entire family went to Egypt, sons and grandsons, daughters and granddaughters, and all his descendants. you see uh, Jacob packing up. He was living at this time in Hebron near what would one day be Jerusalem. And he travels towards Egypt south. And he comes to Beersheba. Now Beersheba is significant for a couple reasons. One, it was the place where, where Jacob grew up. If you remember, it was the home for much of the time where Isaac, his father, lived. And so as he comes to Beersheba, it would have been him something like going home. And there would have been memories associated with living in that place. So it was significant for that reason, and certainly brought to mind his own father. But it also marks really the southern boundary of Canaan. Uh, It's really the the farthest inhabitable region. And from here, as he moves on towards Egypt, he's really leaving behind Canaan. And he's really turning his back finally on, on the promised land. And so the question is, where is Jacob's heart in all this? What's Jacob thinking? Well, it's significant Then he gets to Beersheba, and what does he do? Well, he worships God, doesn't he? He worships God. He stops, and uh, he sacrifices. He worships God. So where is his heart and mind? Well, I think Jacob is worried. Because in Jacob's heart, he's very much committed to the promise of God. God had made it very clear uh, what he was going to do for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their offspring. And uh, Jacob is not, in his own heart and mind, abandoning God's promise. In fact, he stops and he's very careful uh, to worship. And even though he has uh, all of his belongings, all of his children, uh, he stops to honor and worship God. 
he stops to declare and acknowledge God's presence and leading in his life. Uh, and, and he does that through worship. And uh, God, in turn, appears to him in a vision and reassures him. Right? And God says to him, Jacob, don't be afraid. You, you are on the right track. This detour is my doing. Right? He says, I, I will, I'm sending you down to Egypt, and it's there in Egypt that I'm going to make you a great nation. Right? Now, uh, you know, I, I've wrestled with why God would do that. And it seems a bit crazy. And I do have some ideas, but the text doesn't really tell us. So I'm not going to even share my crazy ideas. All we know is it's just what God does, right? God has reasons. He does not disclose or reveal. But he has reasons and purposes in it. And it's what God is doing. Um, and so as, as uh, I love this, as, as Jacob worships, as, as Jacob really acknowledges who God is, and that God is the one that's in control of his life, God meets him and assures him that he's on the right path. Um, it brings to mind for me uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will direct your paths. Uh, you know, maybe right now you feel like God is taking you on some crazy detour, Right? Maybe you thought you were going to some country and the door closed in that country, now you're somewhere else. Maybe you got kicked out of the country you were in. Maybe, you know, life is full of gazillions of detours, right? And it's easy to think, you know, somehow I have missed God's will. Uh, God revealed to you his purpose. He says, this is what I want you to do. And you set out for that. And before you get 10 steps down the road, right, you're on a detour. And it's easy to start thinking, you know, I have missed it somewhere, I have missed God's purpose. I missed his calling. I did not hear him correctly. Right? Uh, what do you do when you get in places like that? Well, you can do a couple of things. First thing I like to do is panic. <laughs> that goes far. Worry. Okay? Agonize that somehow you've blown it. Right? Feel bad. Beat yourself up. Right? That's one option. Uh, most of us have got quite good at that one. Or you can stop and worship. Right? That's what Jacob does. He stops and he worships. Acknowledge God. Say, God, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't understand your ways. I understand my own. I understand what I think would make sense. And this makes no sense to me. But you know, I acknowledge your ways. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I'm not thinking about this from my perspective. I worship you. I acknowledge that you are a God who's bigger than all of this. And your plan is good and perfect and you know what you are doing. So God, I worship you, lead me. Right? I wait upon you. And that's exactly what, what, what Jacob does. And in response to that, God answers him. He says, you're on the right path. And not only does he answer him and assure him that, uh, that it is indeed, this detour is from him, but again, yet again, God makes an amazing promise. He says, I will go with you to Egypt. Right? Uh, throughout Genesis, God has made this promise repeatedly. He says, I, the God of the universe, am going to go with you. And in Genesis, that always means that God will protect, that God will provide, that God will lead, and that God will, will in every way meet them in the midst of this detour. He says, I will be with you. I will go with you. Um, 
and it kind of brings a good question. You know, one of the and I don't I don't know, and I wouldn't begin to answer why always God gives detours. Um, I'm a person who loves efficiency. I love I love the straight route. Uh, when I'm driving through the mountains in Thailand on really windy, curvy roads, you know, I cut corners. <laughs> Sorry, my confession. I cut the corners because it just is easier, right? It's more direct, right? Why doesn't God take the direct path? Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but I think in this statement there are some clues, right? Uh, why does God love detours? Why does he love dragging us through the scenic route, right? Uh, through the shortcuts that are ten times longer and way more difficult. Well, I think one of the reasons is that God, it, for God it's not so much about the journey as it is about us meeting with him and experiencing his presence along the way, right? God, and the, the deal is, God was always with Jacob. God was always with Joseph. God was always with those who he chooses. He is always with us. But here's the deal. When life is super easy, and we're on the straight highway, and it's on cruise control, and we're just cruising down the road kind of mindless, you know, really, we don't care too much if God's with us or not, right? How, honestly, how much do we think about God's presence when everything is going well? It's just so easy to go you know, on, on autopilot and lose track of God's presence with us. Right? Uh, by contrast, though, when everything's going wrong and you're in the midst of troubles and obstacles and, and you're lost, right? uh, we cry out to God. We call upon God. We look to God. We wonder, is he with us? Um, and I think that's the principle. God, God knows that there is something incredibly bonding about going through difficult experiences together. And I, I learned this uh, in my own life through some wonderful personal experience. Uh, many of you know that for years I led high school backpack trips. And we would go up into the wilderness of Colorado, and I, I love the mountains. I love working with high schools in that kind of environment. And... Um, my goal, I learned quickly, the best way to make these, these trips work well was to make them absolutely as difficult as possible. So I made sure that we never had trails. I made sure we went areas where most people would never go. And I found the most difficult, insane way to do things, right? So like if we were to climb a mountain, instead of taking the path that everybody would take, I'd find a much more difficult path. And if that wasn't difficult enough, I would get the kids up at 3 in the morning, we'd climb it in the dark. Because uh, watching the sunrise from a 14,000-foot peak is just the coolest thing ever. And uh, the reason I did that, the kids all thought I did that because I was just insane, which could have been true, or cruel, which is probably true. But the real reason is that I discovered that when you have kids for six days and you want to really make a deep impact in their life, the best way to do it is to just drag them through hell, right? And make them suffer... Because there's something incredibly bonding about that kind of experience, right? And, uh, uh, you know, it worked. And to this day, some of those kids are very dear friends and still keep in touch. In fact, uh, several months ago, I got this random email from this, uh, this young couple. They said, we're coming to Chiang Mai and we want to meet you. <laughs> okay. And they said, you're, you know, you don't know us, but we're really good friends with one of the kids that used to go on your backpack trips. Right? And they said, we have to meet you. Right? <laughs> they, they, I wanted to see what kind of crazy this guy this is. Right? Um, 
See, there's something very bonding. There's something that connects people in those kind of circumstances. Well, the deal is God, God wants to connect with you. He, he wants to build a relationship with, where you are clearly aware of his presence. Right? Where it's not just some kind of abstract thing, oh yeah, God's with me, I got the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, I don't know and I don't care. That's not good enough for God. He wants you to know in tangible, real ways what it means to be with God and for God to be with you. And you know, it's one of the most brilliant ways to pull that off is to take you on incredible detours and to drag you down the most difficult paths possible where you experience His hand with you step by step. I don't know if that's the only reason, but I think that's clearly one reason God works in our life the way He does. And I think it's why he chose to take Jacob to Egypt and get the deal. And this is not just a short detour, okay? This is a 400-year detour, right? 400 years that would get increasingly difficult and painful for Jacob's descendants. Um, So God wants to be with you. He He wants you to experience his presence. And then he says also, he says, not only am I going with you, but I will bring you back. Because you don't need to fear. He says, this is not the end of the promise. It's not a dead end. It is absolutely just a detour, and I will bring you back. And if Jacob only knew what that statement would involve, right? I'm sure he had no idea that that his descendants would indeed become a great nation uh, with over a million citizens who would fall under the oppression and domination of Egypt. And that it would take Moses and incredible acts of God uh, and huge miracles to lead them out of Egypt. Uh, huge understatement. I will bring you back. Yes, God would. In ways Jacob could not imagine. Right? And through that, God would demonstrate to Israel his incredible saving power and greatness for them. Um, well, the passage goes on from there, and, and uh, Jacob is, a, is assured, and so he sets forward from Beersheba, confident that he's in God's purpose and will, and the next uh, many long verses we will not read through is basically a family portrait, okay? Because back in those days, you know, they didn't have cameras. So if you want to get a family portrait, you've got to write it down. And that's exactly what this is. He has a list of all his children and all of his grandchildren and their families. And he describes in detail the snapshot of this band of people leaving Canaan and heading to Egypt. And he he concludes by numbering them at 66 and 70. Uh, he says, first, there were 66 who left, and somehow there were 70 who arrived. Okay? A bit confusing, and commentators have wrestled uh, and struggled, and nobody's come up with an answer of who the missing four people are. Right? Uh, probably, most people believe, however, that the 70 is just a, a, a symbolic number, that his whole clan went. It was the whole group. It was a, a number of completion or perfection. So he's saying the whole family went. Nobody got left behind. And it was this contingent of 70 people, which is quite impressive. Okay? It's, it's Jacob, his sons, and his grandson, grandchildren, not counting their wives, right? And he's, he's already at 70. Now, I'm, a, I'm like Jacob, only a lot younger. Um, I'm, a, I'm a grandfather. I have children. I have grandchildren. And we, we, we number all of 15. So 70, that's impressive. That's an impressive number. But the great thing with snapshots is kind of a before and after picture. I have this, in our, in our family, we have this great before and after picture of my great-grandparents. Uh, 
when they first bought their house, it's this black and white picture with my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, this house with bare, empty walls, and the two of them sitting on a chair, black and white photo. We have another picture that matches it almost, like, almost exactly. Same house, different wallpaper. Same couple sitting in chairs, but it's after they've had children and grandchildren. And the walls are filled with photographs of children. And they have around them this huge entourage of family, right? Well, this is a snapshot, and the first snapshot is 70. The next comparison photo is in Exodus, right? Where there's this huge contingent of people. And it's a sign and a picture, really, uh, and a reminder that God was indeed moving forward his promise, right? God was building them into a nation. He was multiplying them. He was giving them children and grandchildren, right? And uh, I think it's intended to be for Jacob an encouragement. Here's the deal. When you're in the midst of a detour, it's really easy to focus on everything going wrong, right? It's really, in fact, it's hard not to get overwhelmed with the obstacle and to feel like, you know, this just doesn't work. I just constantly feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. Uh, I think Jacob would say, look, when you're in places like that, look around you, not at the negative circumstances, but remember what God has done, right? Here's a quick question. You can raise your hand. Has God done something good in your life, ever? Okay, there you go. Almost everybody. The three of you who didn't raise your hand will pray for you. Uh, Remember those things, right? When God, when, when life's not going well, and it would be easy to be discouraged by the detour, the obstacles, remember the faithfulness of God in the good things, right? Uh, focus on those things. And that's kind of what Jacob sees around him. He's leaving uh, Canaan. He's, in a sense, walking away, taking this huge detour from the promise. But look at what he's got going with him. He's got this huge entourage of family. His son is the ruler of Egypt, right? Next chapter, he stands audience with the Pharaoh, right? It's not all bad, right? And we need to keep our focus on, on uh, what God's doing. Uh, so that's kind of chapter, most of chapter 46. Um, as, as Jacob arrives in Egypt... Um, the, the story, fo- the, the, the shift focuses, a, the focus shifts a bit from Jacob back to Joseph. And uh, there's a, a lot of detail, very involved detail. We're not going to read through the whole thing. Let me just summarize briefly what's going on here. Uh, and in, these, in the end of chapter 46 and all of 47, Joseph is really pictured or portrayed as a savior. And in fact, the, uh, the Egyptian people themselves... Uh, declare him. They say in verse 25, um, you have saved our lives. Um, One of the things about detours is, especially the detours like I take, you know, the detours when the bridge is out and they they send you on the path, there's clear signs, those big orange signs with big arrows that mark you on the path. However, my style of detours um, are mostly what Denise would call getting lost, right? And it can kind of look that way. And and by design, that's kind of what God is about. God wants us to take the road to nowhere so we get lost uh, because it's then that we recognize we need a Savior. 
And detours are mostly about getting saved. Uh, there's something about God's purpose and design in our life that, that from the outside may look a, lo- a little cruel and insane, but God wants to reveal himself to us as a savior. Okay? Uh, that is, throughout Scripture, when you read from Genesis through Revelation, the number one descriptor of who God is in relationship to us is as a Savior, a Redeemer. Right? Uh, and in the Genesis account, Joseph is really a type or a picture uh, of a Savior. He is, for us, a model of really how God chooses to work in redeeming and saving people. And we see that in several scenes. And the first scene is Jacob really uh, saving his father, uh, restoring hope to his father. And it says, as they near their destination, Jacob sent Judah ahead to meet Joseph and to get directions to the region of Goshen. When they finally arrived there, Joseph prepared his chariot and traveled to Goshen to meet his father, Jacob. When Joseph arrived, he embraced his father and wept, holding him for a long time. Finally, Jacob said to Joseph, and get these words. Okay. He says, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen your face again, and I know you are alive. What's all that about? Well, of course, it's a very emotional thing. They've been separated for 22 years. Uh, Jacob was convinced that Joseph had died. In his mind, his son had died. And so here's this very emotional reunion where Jacob comes before his son, and now his son, who's this, this uh, ruler of Egypt, comes with these chariots and entourage. Um, and, and Joseph throws himself on his father, and he just weeps. He cries over his father. Cries tears of joy uh, in his own life, feeling the hurt and loss of all those years apart from his father. Um, and we don't really get a lot of response out of Jacob, which is kind of typical of his character and personality, except for this. He says, okay, I can die now. <laughs> um, well, it may not seem significant or important, but when you look through the, the Joseph story, uh, Jacob is a guy who thinks about dying a lot. In fact, remember all the way back, 110 years old, he was ready to die then. 22 years have gone by, 30 years have gone by. He's still not dead. He's got 17 more years to go. This guy just won't die. And uh, uh, up to this point, though, death for him was a bitter thing. He said, my gray hair will go down to Sheol with bitterness and grief. But all of a sudden now that has all changed. Well, why has it changed? Well, because Jacob has really an experience with resurrection. Uh, His son who had died is now standing before him alive. And a great picture. And, you know, the Jews uh, at this early, early stage before, this is way back, they didn't have a lot of concepts of resurrection and afterlife. Uh, They hadn't figured all that out yet. God had not revealed it to them. But he really experiences in a very real practical way what resurrection is. Uh, Here, his son who had died is now alive. Of course, he never actually died, but for for Jacob he had. And it gives him new hope about his own death. He says, you know, I can die in peace because I see now that God's bigger than all this, that there is hope after all this. He says, I can, I can die with peace. That's a great picture for us of, uh, of really what it means for us that Jesus has risen again. Right? Uh, Paul says, you know, there is the, there's no sting of death for us who know Christ. Right? We don't have to fear death because 
the sun has risen, right? The sun lives, and we will see him face to face. Uh, And part of the salvation that God gives to us is a a restored hope that our life is, is much bigger than just what it is here on earth. There is hope, the hope of resurrection. Uh, next thing Joseph does, though, he, he saves not only his father and gives him hope, but he really saves, his, he saves the nation. He preserves the nation of Israel. And uh, the next few verses I won't read through, um, he, he gives very specific instructions to his brothers about meeting Pharaoh. And it seems like a lot of detail, and you read through this, and you go, okay, well, that's just really nice. And he says, you know, you're going to stand before Pharaoh, and you've got to make sure and tell him over and over again you're shepherds, and blah, blah, blah. And you go, well, what is this really all about? Well, Joseph was doing a couple things. First thing is he was really looking out for the immediate welfare of his family. Uh, he was seeking to resettle them to Egypt, and specifically he wanted them in the land of Goshen, which was a, uh, a grazing pasture area away from the, now away from the city, much more out in the country. Uh, and it would guarantee and, and secure for them, as it turns out, land. So it's, it's a bit ironic that the promise was for them to, to, to take possession of Canaan. In Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life, they never really owned lands, very small little parcels, but never really bought land. God brings them to Egypt, and, and Joseph secures for them a huge land grant in Goshen. Okay? Uh, and so part of it was just a practical thing that Joseph was, in a very real practical sense, saving his family, preserving their life. But it was more than that. The que- and the question really is, why did, why, did, why did Joseph pick, you know, the boondocks? Okay, why did he decide they need to live out of town far away, right? Why not, why didn't Joseph bring him into his palace or live, you know, down the street? Well, there may have been practical reasons, you know, he didn't really trust his brothers, and maybe he didn't like them. And so he wanted them far away, but I don't think so. Uh, I think uh, Joseph, either through God's revelation or just through his own wisdom, he knew that this was going to be a long deal. Right? He knew that they were going to be here for a while. And he himself had lived in Egypt, and he knew how easy it would be to cut for, for his family to become assimilated into Egyptian culture. Right? And this would have been disaster for the promise. Okay, what happens if they come, they live there for 400 years, they move into the city, they, 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 they quickly assimilate into Egyptian culture, and then they in every way become Egyptian. They start speaking the Egyptian language, they take on the Egyptian customs, they marry Egyptian women. In 400 years, what happens to the nation of Israel? Well, it's no longer a nation. It becomes just Egyptians, right? They would lose their unique cultural national identity, right? And, and, and Joseph doesn't want that. So he really saves them as a nation by sending them far away. And um, he makes a point to say, say over and over again that you're shepherds, because he knew that the Egyptians didn't like shepherds, right? So in, in essence, what Joseph is doing is he's building up a prejudice before they even get started. He says, I want to alienate you. I want to isolate you so these people don't like you, Okay. So they stay away from you. Because you can't develop and grow into a unique, chosen people of God if you become absorbed into the culture of Egypt. And and that's what does. And we see in in Exodus, uh, they are very much a people. They are very much not part of Egyptian culture. They have kept their own language and their own customs. 
Um, sadly, they, they have picked up a number of uh, Egyptian uh, idols and other things, but they still are quite unique and separate. And that was really the genius of, of Joseph or the divine providence of God. We don't know which. But in that sense, again, Joseph saves them. And it is a good reminder for us that as a people of God, um, you know, we're not to assimilate in the culture around us. We are to be unique and different. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are not to uh, absorb the world's customs. Um, and the reality is this is kind of a hard one because none of us likes to be a dork, <laughs> right? I mean, some of us naturally are. I kind of naturally am. But uh, most of us don't choose that, right? We want to, there's a part of us that wants to fit in, to belong, right? Uh, to, uh, to not be outside the culture. Uh, take on top of that the fact that the gospel itself, the good news about Jesus, is hard for people to swallow. And um, you know, people who are not of the faith, who are not Christians, think we're crazy already. And because of those forces, the church in recent days has, has tried an attempt to kind of bridge the gap between the gospel and lost people. Um, oftentimes we make the mistake of trying to be like the lost people we're reaching, uh, where we, we lose all of our distinctions and distinctiveness where we, uh, you know, like if, like if you want to be, if you want to really reach people with the gospel, you've got to be cool like lost people, right? Where does that come from? Okay, was Jesus cool? Well, he was cool because he was God. He wasn't cool because he matched and mirrored the culture around him, right? I'm not saying you intentionally have to be a dork, <laughs> okay? I'm not saying, you know, you, you have to discard all of modern style or culture, because uh, it's not about the externals, right? It's not about the externals. But there ought to be a uniqueness about us in our character, in our integrity, right? People in the world ought to look at us and say, you know, you're different. What's wrong with you? Okay? And they may not get why we're different. But we ought to appear to them at some levels different and unique because we don't do the things they do, because we don't have the same values they do. Because our values, because we are... We are indeed members of a different kingdom. As Colossians 1 says, it says, He has enabled you, that is, God, has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. For He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His dear Son who purchased our freedom with His blood and forgave our sins. We are members of a different kingdom. Uh, we should... Uh, we must be careful how much we assimilate in the culture of darkness. And we should live in the culture of darkness. We need to be lights in the darkness. But we don't become lights in the darkness by becoming darkness, right? We must keep our light in Christ alive and vital. Uh, lastly, he brings salvation to... Uh, actually, he brings salvation to the world. Uh, of course, the world in that day was much smaller, and I don't mean the whole globe, but I mean the whole world of that area. In that time, Egypt was, was the country, and it did not dominated much of the, the region of the Mediterranean, uh, which was all in famine. And Joseph, through his wisdom and through his foresight, through the revelation of God, uh, he really brings salvation to, to, to all these people. And, and he does it through this food program. 
Uh, and again, I won't read it. It's, it's quite long, but this is how it works. First year, they spend all their savings, right? And they come to them, they spend all their savings, they deplete their savings buying grain. So next year comes around, they don't have any money, and they come to Joseph and they say, look, we spent all our money, we have no savings, but we're going to die. We will all die if you don't give us food. So here, here's what we'll do. We will give you our livestock. So the second year, Joseph takes all their livestock. And uh, throughout the whole land, um, he purchases up all their livestock. Third year comes along. Remember, this is a seven-year famine. Third year comes along. They have no savings. They have no livestock. They come to him again and they say, look, uh, we're just going to die and the land will become desolate. All of our money is gone and you have our livestock and our cattle. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. And so Joseph says, that works. And so he takes all their land and turns the whole populace into, into basically slaves or serfs, right? And at the end of all that, the people cry out to uh, Joseph and exclaim, You have saved our lives. May it please you, my Lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. Okay? And they cheer him on as a hero. Okay? Now all of us who come from the West and who come from democratic societies look at this and we kind of are horrified. Right? It's like, what are they cheering? He just made them slaves. Right? Where's his heart? Where's his generosity? This seems like a very cold and cruel thing to do. Um, what is this about? Well, uh, it's a different culture. It's a different time. Right? And in this time period, in this day and age, this is how it would have worked. Right? It's, just, it's just how it worked then. It, uh, all I can tell you, it was different then. And for them, this did seem like a good idea. Uh, and, and I would say there's something right and dignified in them not just taking a free handout, but in some sense, earning and working uh, for what they were receiving. Okay? In many ways, Joseph was preserving human dignity by exchanging their labor for food. And, and the truth is, he didn't. when it says he took their cattle, he took their land, he took their lives, he didn't actually take it. What he would have done is would have conscripted it all into the king's possession. But they had their, ca- their cattle, they had their land. And in fact, what he does, he says, look, I own it all. And you are obligated or indebted to the Pharaoh. So here's how it works. You will pay back your indebtedness by uh, every year paying one-fifth of your, of your harvest back to Pharaoh. Right? So they're not slaves in that they're you know, captive, that they have no freedom, that they're being tortured or abused. It's, it's, it's a feudal system where... He says, look, the, the land now belongs to Pharaoh. You, you are indebted. You're obligated to Pharaoh. And the way you will pay it back is uh, annual 20% tax. Right? Um, and it's a good picture of Joseph bringing salvation. Uh, it's also a good picture for us of uh, the truth that, that salvation always comes at a price. Right? Salvation is, is never free. There really is no such thing as a free handout. And you would say, well, yeah, but didn't, doesn't God give us his salvation free? Well, it's free to us, but it costs somebody something, right? It costs God enormously. Uh, he gave us his son. Right? That was the purchase of our, uh, our salvation. It always costs something. Um, and as a result, because we have been redeemed by Christ, 
There is, in the same sense, uh, uh, an obligation that we owe to God. Right? Uh, we're not in his slaves and that God has a chain around our neck. But isn't it true that because of what he has done for us, body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Uh, it's a great picture. They were indebted to, to Joseph, ultimately to Pharaoh. Uh, in the same way, we, we are in a sense indebted to God. Uh, he has purchased our life, and we are no longer our own. Uh, meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property, and they were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Notice that it doesn't appear, we don't know for sure, but it doesn't appear that the Israelites fall into the same debt as the Egyptians did. It seems that in Joseph's uh, engineering all of this, He's done it in such a way that the Israelites do not become indebted or in surf, serfdom to Pharaoh. Okay? Uh, they, they acquire land, they, they become fruitful, they multiply. Right? Uh, Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt, so he lived 147 years in all. And as the time of his death drew near, Jacob called for his son Joseph and said to him, Please do me this favor. Put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will treat me with unfailing love by honoring this last request. Okay, Jacob wants one last, he has one last wish. He's lived a full long life. He wants just one simple thing, and notice what he asks for. He says, Do not bury me in Egypt. When I die, please take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors in Canaan. Uh, why was that such a big deal for Jacob? And in fact, again, he says, he repeats again, swear that you will do this. Uh, and he makes Joseph give an oath. Right? What is that about? Well, I think it's a great reminder that Jacob knew this was a detour, right? But he never lost sight of the eternal purpose of God. And what was the eternal purpose of God? Well, that he would rest in the land of his ancestors. That he would... That he would live again in the land of promise. Okay? And now, sadly, his bones would live there, which is not quite the same as living there and breathing. It was okay for him. Because for him it was about uh, the big picture, the eternal future. And again, I don't know how much they understood about eternity, how much they understood about life after death, but it is for Jacob his great hope that what God promised him was more than just the immediate today, uh, that God was going to fulfill his promise, and Jacob had his mindset on the eternal goal. Right? Um, you know, for us, it's really easy, especially when we find ourselves caught on these detours, when we find ourselves bogged down in, in this is the junk of life, when things don't go well, and sometimes even when things do go well, but we're just distracted by things. To, it's so easy to lose focus on the grand eternal destination. Right? What is your long-term goal? And I don't mean your five-year goal, your ten-year goal. I mean like your thousand-year goal. Right? Where do you want to be a thousand years from now? What do you want life to be 
a thousand years from now. Jacob said, look, I want to spend my, my years of eternity in the land of promise. That was his focus, right? Uh, it's so easy for us to get so wrapped up in today, we, we forget, we lose sight of the fact that we are members of an eternal kingdom and that our salvation is not just about today. It's about enjoying all the fullness and blessings that God has promised us throughout all eternity. And here's the deal, you know, when we finally get to the destination, a thousand years from now when we are standing in God's presence and whatever all of that glorious realm is going to be like, and we are living life there, we're going to look back at the detours of this life as very small little bumps in the road, right? You know, and when we have that perspective, it keeps... It makes today's problems just not such a big deal, right? Uh, it, makes, it makes the things we struggle with now not that big a deal, right? Uh, Paul says, when I was a child, I, I thought like a child, but as I grew up, I put away childish things. A thousand years from now, most of what we're dealing with, how much of it's really going to matter, right? Uh, we hope we're doing things that have eternal impact, um, but remember, what God is really about, what he really wants is he wants to just walk with you. He just wants to be with you now as a, as a little warm-up and taste of what it will be to be with him throughout all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we just do praise you so much that you are a God of salvation. Uh, and Lord, it's... Uh, it's crazy that sometimes you take us to places where um, instead of making life better, it just gets worse and worse. Um, and Lord, oftentimes life is filled with difficulty. And Father, we, we struggle against that because we want life to be easy. Uh, sometimes, Father, we, we confuse comfort and your love. And we think that if you really loved us, you would make life easy. But that's not how you work. You are a God who loves us deeply. And uh, you want us to experience you. And you know that we'll experience you most through hardship and through the struggle of, of building our faith up as we see you save us over and over again from ourselves and from circumstances, uh, from the attacks of those around us. So, Lord, just help us to keep that perspective. And above all else, help us to know what your goal, what your ultimate promise is. It's not just about today or tomorrow or this year, although that journey is part of it. But the, the ultimate end of the journey is to live forever in your glorious presence. Uh, Lord, give us a greater vision of eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.